millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast, our Christmas special, uh, where we're going to be doing some Christmassy festival things later on in the podcast. I'm Steve Norman, joined by Owen Hughes, Hello. Callum Petch, Hello. Matt Lamborn, and that's all of us. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Freeze Company falls a podcast. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Uh, anyway, to start us off this week, we're going to forego any news as... There isn't any, or we could well, be bothered. Well, the news is, of course, it's Christmas. Yes. The news is it's Christmas. Well, there's been an endless supply of news, but it's Christmas, so apparently nobody cares. No, exactly. everyone's too busy. Um, yeah. News, actually, yeah. News. <laughs> it's too busy. News is, <laughs> too busy. News is boring. News is boring and ruins Christmas. So we're not doing it. Um, yeah, well, it's true. Most of it's miserable, so it would ruin Christmas. Yes. Uh, but Owen has prepared a a festive quiz for all of us. Um, I have. I've no idea what the rules are and how it's going to take shape. It's a complete <laughs> mystery, probably to Owen himself as well. Yeah, I'm going to go through the quiz in a minute. But oh, yeah. I think if you remember, Steve, on the last the last podcast that we did, before yes. we went on a sort of mini hiatus to try yes. and fix ourselves, yes. so the audio issues, um, you lost the quiz. I did. And I challenged you to watch Under the Skin. I have not watched it because A, <sighs> a I was unable to source it in time and B, I thought with such a, a jam-packed Christmas podcast, it would not be the uh, best time to talk about it. It was. <laughs> that sounds like a comic to me. And <laughs> the first one in the new year, I will review it in full glory. Okay. I'm going to hold you to that. You can hold me to that. Perfect. Okay. Well, we'll leave it we'll leave it there for the time being. Just to sort of quickly say, uh, Matt, Callum, either of you seen it? Yes. Yes, I saw it back, I saw it back in like June. It's on my, okay. it, will, it will be on my top ten of the year. Oh, well, there you go, Steve. How about you, Matt? Have you seen it? Uh, no. Any plans to? Is <laughs> <laughs> it just another spoiler alert type scenario? No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna talk about it because I don't. I don't want to spoil. Not that I could probably spoil it because it's just so fucking bizarre anyway. But um, it also has the best performance of the year. Possibly. No, no. So I have not seen a better performance of Sheeran Scarlett Johansson under the skin. Well, there you that's, go. That, then, that, that's it. I, I'm standing. Bring it on here. <laughs> My controversial opinions. Scarlett Johansson isn't the Mandarin. I'm. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. On with the quiz. Um, it's slightly different this time. I've got three questions. Okay. 
and it's the first one to get it right. So there's three answers, so you can each pick the same one, or you can pick um, whichever one you think is right. And there's no prize, it's just a bit of fun this time. Um, but I've got a tie break as well, so if we're tied at the end, we'll, we'll see. It always seems unnecessarily complex. It does, doesn't it? But it's not, it's quite straightforward. So the first question, it is Christmas themed by the way, of course it is. So the first question, which is the highest grossing Christmas movie of the following three? And that's the lifetime gross according to Box Office Mojo. Is it Elf? Is it The Nightmare Before Christmas? Or is it Jingle All The Way? Nightmare Before Christmas. That's gone for Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, I'm going Jingle All The Way. Oh, Steve's on Jingle All The Way. Callum, are you picking another one? Or I'm are you going to say Elf. Because I'm pretty sure Nightmare was a relative failure of a box on his first time film. Ooh, well, Callum is right, it was Elf. Elf yes! was the highest grossing. $173 million for Elf. That seems extraordinarily high. What, what, what was second? Second was Nightmare Before Christmas, $75 million. So $100 million less. I thought the goth community would have saved the day on that one, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. Yeah, yeah, Tim Burton's got a large fan base, but um, obviously actually, not large enough to... Actually, director Henry Selleck. Sorry, I had to get my production yeah, He produced it, didn't he? Yes, and his name is flaunted around everywhere, but he did not direct it as it is his Right. Well, anyway, and Jingle All The Way was obviously third with 60 million. That's still 60 million too many. 60 and a... Oh, no, that, that is controversial. Because you can't slate an Arnold Schwarzenegger film on here, because you're talking to three guys who love action films. And even if Jingle All the Way isn't, Arnie's, uh, it's the failed critics. That's I was going to say, do you want to keep, do you want to, like, just stretch out a bit there, continue to try and fail to come up with excuses? <laughs> well, there's, there's, no, there's no room for talking shit about Schwarzenegger on this Exactly. Conference. Thank you, Matt. You well, how about, how about when Terminator Mega Drive ends up being awful? We'll conveniently ignore it. Plain <laughs> <laughs> Jai Corny. Moving on, Callum, moving on. Question two. Which won more Oscars? Was it It's a Wonderful Life? Scrooge from 1951? Or the original Miracle on 34th Street from 1947? Oh. This is horrible. I'm yeah. going to go with... The original Miracle on 34th Street. Okay. Matt? What was the um, the most recent of them again? Well, they're all quite old. So you've got It's a yeah. Wonderful Life, uh, which I think was 1947. And then it's Scrooge from 1951 and Miracle on 34th Street from 1947. This is Scrooge. Scrooge? I'm going to pick the one that looks most obvious, but it's probably... It's a wonderful life. Okay. So, you've all gone for three different options again. And Steve wins that round. It was Miracle on 34th Street. Good. Yeah. Won, won three Oscars. Um, it's a Wonderful Life was nominated for three, but didn't win any. Oh. Yeah. And Scrooge didn't get nominated for any. That was a sort of trick one. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> it's quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, okay. You could redeem yourself with the final question, I suppose. Um, which is, of the following three 
movie franchises which has had more sequels. Okay. Red Claws, Home Alone, or The Santa Claus? Wow. Home Alone. I'm, g- I'm going with The Santa, no, with Red Claw. No, Home Alone. Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll go with, uh, Santa Claus. Santa Claus, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Matt, Callum, and Steve are both on that one. It's Home Alone. Gazumped. Yeah. You've been trumped, I'm afraid. Um, Trumped, rather. <laughs> because Santa Claus had two sequels, so there's three films in total. There's five Home Alone films, and just the one, Red Claws, thankfully. I thought, that was a se- I thought it was like a sequel prequel at some point. I thought I saw a Red Claws one running around in some bargain bin at like Asda. <laughs> Nothing that I could see on Wikipedia. Uh, oh, most reliable of resources. But anyway, so that means that... that that's Two each. So there's a tiebreak question. It's exciting, isn't it? Intense yeah. and... Mm. And I think you could... Testosterone. <laughs> you could maybe try and work this one out, but I think it's mainly going to be a guess. It's going to be guesswork. So, Enjoy. yes. Right now, in a town called Santa Claus, in the state of Indiana, in America, at the Jasper 8 Theatre, right, this is a town Santa Claus, how many PG-13 films are currently showing today? Is it two? Is it five? Or is it seven? How many films are showing in total at that cinema? How many PG-13 films? No, I, w- I want to now? know so I can form an educated guess how many films in total, how many screens have they got? Eight. It's the Jasper Eight Theatre, so I imagine they've just got eight screens. But there are eight films showing there. I'm, I'm going to go with five. Does this include, are you specifically referring to today and not a big film that's coming out? Today. Oh, it's not today. Yeah. Right, right, right now. It's the 16th of December. Right. I'm trying to figure out how it counts. Uh, is it two? Is it five? Is it seven? Five. Oh, I'm thinking. Uh, I'm going to go five. Both going for five? Final answer? Oh, and have you got a second tiebreaker question? I don't, and you both won the tiebreaker question. <laughs> so, that's basically, it's a tie. I can't go any further than that. That's all I've prepared, so. You really didn't think that far through with this, did you? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> See, it should have been a, a nearest, nearest to the pin answer yeah, for the tiebreaker. Yeah, is right. Price is about going over. Yeah. Uh, well, it's too late. You're both tied. Merry Christmas all round for everyone but Matt. There you go. You're, you're both as worthless as I am. <laughs> We're all losers. Everyone loses. Some of, us, some of us are less losers than others. Isn't that right, Callum? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Just because just we won and beat your quiz as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to sulk for the rest of the podcast. Uh, anyway, we're going to have a quick break here while Owen recoups himself. And up next will be our festive edition of what we've been watching. So, part two, and what we've been watching, a festive edition where we review a Christmassy kind of film that we've seen in the last week or so. Um, so, Owen, why don't you start us off? Okay, yeah. Um, I will start just a little bit of context. I bought some... Uh, Odeon t 
recently. I got them a deal for a Groupon, which was five tickets for 20 quid, which I thought was quite a good deal. Um, seeing as the Odeon that's in Oxford in the city centre usually shows films that my little local cinema world doesn't. Um, so, for example, I went to see Mr. Turner there, used on my codes. I went to see 71 at this uh, Odeon in the city centre, and that was great. Um, but since then, there hasn't really been a whole lot of films that I wanted to see. So I was stuck with three three tickets, three codes, and they expire this Friday. So in a sort of mad panic, I was trying to work out what films I could see. One of them, I'm probably going to see Paddington, which... Oh my god. Yeah, I'm not really oh, looking to it. Yeah, your review was quite... Positive overall, I felt. Yeah. Um, I, got, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Yeah, so I'm, I've been convinced to go and see Paddington at some point this week. Um, the other film was Penguins of Madagascar, which I wasn't really keen on at all, to be honest. Uh, despite Callum's. Also uh, that's it, I quit. Awesome. I quit. You have to remember, though, Callum, that Owen was born at 30 and, and <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just not like anything to do with childhood or fun. He thinks that from Ice Age is better than the Penguins. This is just, this is unacceptable. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am deeming this unacceptable. Well, too bad. I'm the boss. We're moving on with that one. Scratch is better. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> it's Scratch! You can't even get the I got it, no. I didn't. I'll be honest. I said that to one draw, I think. <laughs> moving on. So, yeah, I had sort of tickets spare this week and um, Monday, on Monday, they were showing It's a Wonderful Life on the big screen. And I've never seen it, It's a Wonderful Life before. Somehow ma- managed to make it to, to this age without seeing It's a Wonderful Life. Did it um, make your life wonderful? Briefly, it, it lit up my life and made me feel glad to be alive. It did. It was a very touching, heartwarming story. It was everything everyone's always described it as being. Um, did you cry? No, didn't cry, but I. No, I wouldn't say cry, but I did sort of feel something. I'm presuming that was sort of an emotional warmth towards the end. I don't think there was a manly tear. There you go. There you go. Owen Hughes felt emotion. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> something other than. He's a Terminator. <laughs> He's a real um, boy. I never know, know why you cry, but it's something I can never. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> uh, we can uh, keep going. Yeah. But no, I really, I did really like it. And, um, Jimmy Stewart, of course, was magnificent. Um, the story was, it was, it was very sentimental. And I did feel myself about to roll my eyes. And then I'd sort of slap myself silly and say, oh, shut up. It, it's, it's meant to be sentimental. It's a Christmas film. And, that's the point of it, and it, you know, it is all about sort of Christmas spirit and people coming together, and it, it, yeah, I just, I really felt something towards it, which was genuinely a, 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 a love for the film at the time. I mean, I did get sort of brought back down to reality on my way home with some idiot tailgating me all the way, and that just made me rage again. But during that sort of Two hours that I was in the cinema for. Yeah. It was a really nice film and put me in a Christmassy spirit. And then you reverted back to old, to grumpy old man news. To grumpy old, exactly. That happened straight almost immediately afterwards. <laughs> but during that cinema trip, 
Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I can see why so many people claim it to be sort of their favourite Christmas film or sort of have the family tradition of sitting around together and watching it because it is all about sort of Jimmy Stewart's family in the end and his friends and getting together with people. So, yeah, it kind of reminded me a little bit of like an Orson Welles film if he'd been told to make a Christmas film for Disney. That's what it felt like. But in a lot of ways, that's positive because Orson Welles obviously made good films. Like, Citizen Kane is one of the best films ever made. So, yeah, it was good. And I, I can't really pay enough compliments, I don't think. Good. Um, Matt, what was your pick? Well, I decided to go for something that I hadn't watched previously, and I must admit I'm probably the wrong person to be asked to review Christmas films, because I'm, I'm probably <laughs> even more emotion-dry than, than Owen is when it comes to festivities, but I went for Elf 2003, uh, I'm sure you all have probably all seen it before, but um, I'm not a massive Will Ferrell fan, so it's not something I've been, been keen on seeing previously, but uh, yeah, I gave it a shot this week story of a human baby who sneaks into Santa's sack and grows up amongst the elves on the North Pole and then suddenly at the age of 30 decides it's time to go to New York and find his real dad, where hilarity should ensue. However, I didn't get it particularly. Um, as I say, Will Ferrell fails to make me laugh most of the time and I, I got a couple of wry smiles throughout this one, but didn't find a lot of the jokes particularly amusing or any of the supporting um, actors particularly good in this. James Caan, not particularly valuable in any way, shape or form. They could have gotten him. Any actor to have played his role doesn't really offer anything. Um, a highlight was seen. Peter Dinklage pop up in it for about five minutes. Obviously, no one really knew who he was at the time when this came out, but since being a massive Game of Thrones fan, that brought a smile to my face. Seeing him beat the shit out of Will Ferrell was funny. Uh, but, but ultimately, I don't think this goes down in, in my book as a Christmas classic, and I watched it with my girlfriend. She didn't find it funny at all either. So I felt slightly vindicated that I wasn't enjoying it as much as other people I've spoken to about it seem to. Um, but it, it does seem to be very popular amongst modern Christmas films that a lot of my friends and people I talk to about movies all seem to enjoy it, and I just don't get it. I don't get Will Ferrell, the attraction to him at all. I don't think I've liked anything he's been in, including, um, what's it called? Anchorman. Anchorman. And <gasps> what's the one with the party animal one? Whatever it's called, I forget. Oh, uh... I know which one you mean. Frank, yeah. Frank the Tank and all that shit. Yeah. Old don't, school. don't like it. So, um, it's not terrible. Uh, but there just wasn't enough laughs. Or if you wanted to go full Christmassy sentimentality, it doesn't deliver on, on that front either. Um, so, it's one for me if you're a massive Will Ferrell Fel- fan. Otherwise, you can stay clear and, and find something else to watch. Yeah, I wasn't massively keen on Elf either. Well, it does seem to have a huge, huge fan base. There's a massive fan base. Uh, and as indicated by your quiz, it, it did tremendously well at the box office. Yeah, third highest grossing Christmas film ever, apparently. That's disgusting. It's <laughs> absolutely nice. It's behind Polo Express, which is second, and Who the Grinch Stole Christmas. 
which is by far and away the league in that list. 260 million that made. Well, that was working in a cinema uh, call centre when the Grinch came out and it was ridiculously popular. Yeah. Um, where's, yeah where's, where's, where's Die Hard on that list? Oh, that's a good question. It's not. It's not listed on Box Office Mojo. They've either not classified it as a Christmas film, Christmas or it grossed less than Christmas in Wonderland, which did six hundred eighty-nine dollars. It's. Of course, <laughs> I've been through this before, and I mention it every year. Of course, Die Hard is a Christmas film. It's about a man trying to get home to see his family for Christmas. Oh, but is it? Is it an action film set at Christmas? No. It's about a man trying to get home to see his family for Christmas. Therefore, it's a Christmas film. I agree. All right. Well, yeah, I will be watching it on Christmas Day. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there you go, uh, Callum. <laughs> what did you see? Uh, well, I couldn't attempt to go back in time and judge of memories and then of Nativity Free, of Nativity exclamation mark free. Colon dude comma where's my donkey question mark exclamation point. But I don't fancy going back into the abyss of cinema just yet, and I will probably, I would prefer to talk about it in some semblance of coherence in my inevitable giant worst off beach of the end of the year. So instead, um, I'll talk about a cinema release from last week. I saw Get Santa, a British comedy film, comedy in loose quotes, uh, written and directed by Christopher Smith, whose name you might, whose name is not exactly household, but is previous of Creep, Severance, Triangle and Black Death. <laughs> not making this up. Not making this up. Um, uh, that's that's a very strange uh, career move for him. Yes, it's, it's so almost chirpy movies, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, include and also with the involvement of Scott Free Productions, Ridley Scott's production group as well. Um, don't ask how on earth any of this has happened. It's a film that gets into itself is. It's, it's an okay Christmas film. It stars Rafe Spall as a just-out-of-prison ex-con who spent two years there and wants to reconnect with his son over the holidays. Um, and it's around about this time as well, but the son discovers that Santa Claus has crash-landed in his backyard and is hiding in his shed. And why so why is he hiding? He's not got time to hide. He's only got the night to do the whole world of presents. He ain't got time to be hiding. <laughs> Well, like, that's been like, and Santa requires Rafe Spall's help, specifically Rafe Spall's help to get him back to, um, the North Pole. When Rafe Spall refuses, Santa gets arrested by the police for trying to break his, his reindeer out of the pound, essentially. And then it's up to Rafe Spall and this really, really annoying kid to get Santa, break Santa out of jail and get him to the North Pole. Whilst all the while having Rafe Spall slowly come around to the wonders of Christmas and Santa. And again, the reason he's doing this is because he's so desperate to see his son again. Like, so desperate to see his son again, despite the fact that his son is an annoying little shit. Um, but now, nah, like I say, that it's fine. It's okay. I mean, it's 100 minutes and it's still too long. And that, but it's got a decent middle 30, like when it has this legitimately sweet part. Um, there are three specific things going for it. Um, well, three notable things, right, anyway. The first is that Jim Broadbent commits to the role of Santa Claus. I mean, like, and I mean, like, commits. Totally, just flings himself into that material, elevates everything he has to do, whether it be, you know, acting like Santa or having to help blend in terribly to prison life. Because as if it's just like a, a segment of Cloud Atlas where he's Santa. <laughs> yeah, you can say that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, he, 
he's also in Paddington as well, incidentally. But you need oh. more of these to basically that. Yeah, but like, you know, he commits, like, he fully commits. And when the film comes alive, it's because it's when it focuses on him. Um, especially because Rafe Spall is not committed. Like, he starts off, like, he starts off the film, like, fine, you know, because he's grudgy, like, this curmudgeonly grudging kind of guy of, ooh, I hate Christmas, blah, 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 this ain't Santa Claus, oh, you want drugs, blah, 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 blah. Like that kind of thing. But, you know, it hits that point in those films where at the halfway mark where the guy has to start believing in Santa and being turned around to the magic of Christmas. And then baseball doesn't actually change his performance. He's still the same miserable game. He has, oh no, he's just miserable. He's just unhappy to be here. Um, the second is that there's this random streak of meanness that runs throughout the film. Like, it's, it's weird. Like, there are a whole bunch of, you know, like genuinely nice, you know, Christmassy spirit stuff around. But there's this attempt to get an edge in there. Yeah, because yeah, there's a bit in prison, you know, the whole kind of thing of getting used to prison guards and threats. And I think there's a, a rape joke at one point is apparently now customary for kid for family films. Um, there's a there's a rape joke in Paddington as well, incidentally. Um, again, this is a thing that happens now. Um, yeah, there's that. There are jokes about how Frank Warwick Davis is a short man, and therefore, ha ha ha, he's short. Um, and also, there's a bit joke in Ali where Sand. Where Santa's being chased by the police, like it's a car chase, they try and get into a sleigh with police chasing after him that, and he starts firing at him, and he leans out of the, um, out of Grace Ball's car and starts shooting at the police with a gun. But it's a gun filled with reindeer poop, so it's okay, and not at all, inc- and not at all incredibly weird to see in the U-rated Christmas film that's supposed to be all about the spirit of Christmas. Um, and the third is that this film has the single Weirdest usage of straight out of Compton by NWA I have ever seen in a film in my entire life. <laughs> like, I, I'm not kidding, like, but, like, there's this bit where Stephen Graham is there as the prison barber, he's trying to make over Santa, so, you know, fit in with prison life. And so then it's time to show Santa off to the thing, and then it's in slow motion, he's strawing down the, you know, he's strawing down the prison ranks, but the, the drum loop starts up, and I'm sat there waiting, like, wait. Wait, is that is that the drum loop to straight out of Compton? I mean, straight out of Compton, crazy brother named Ice Cube. It's like what, what? Like straight, that song there in a U-rated kids film by a band that I'm whose name I whose real name I'm not allowed to say, let alone kids are allowed to hear. It's just weird, but yeah. Other than this weird tonal inconsistency and the fact that it's too long, that it's fine. It's okay. It does the job. It's not overly offensive. It's even sweet and fun at points and that, but it just kind of exists, I guess. Um, also, there's a, just a, also, it's like this parade of British actors and I just keep turning up out of nowhere. You know, like the Stephen Graham's in here, Warwick Davis, Rafe Spall. Um, Joanna Scanlon shows up as a des- as a very kind of committed parole officer. Just hunts down Rafe Spall at every opportunity. Um, Ewan Bremner. Ewan Bremner from, um, train spotting shows up at one point. <laughs> so on that. Yeah, no, on that, it's okay. I mean, it's, nobody's going to remember this in a couple of days, and Christopher Smith will hopefully go back to making good films again, but, yeah, it's okay. Okay. And finally then, Christmas film I've seen recently is the classic Home Alone. I don't think really need to tell everyone the story, but I will. Uh, just to kill a bit of time and make it sound like I know what I'm talking about. Uh, so, Kevin McAllister is played by Macaulay Culkin in what is the highlight of his career to date. Apparently, he's in a band now that gives out free pizza at gigs. Uh, uh, free pizza covers of songs. I'm trying to the band. Hang on, I'm going to do a search right now. You keep talking. I'll find I'll, it out. I'll, I'll keep out. talking. You do some research. 
and it will look like we know what we're talking about. Um, so yes, he is, um, a, a child and a child that annoys his whole family that are going on holiday for Christmas to abroad somewhere. I can't remember where. Um, and he makes a wish that he didn't have a family, wakes up in the morning. They have, in an example of some awful parenting, left him behind. And he is, as you would expect from the title, home alone. Um, and while that might sound fun when it's Christmas time and people are away, that comes with its own problems because there's burglars trying to get into his house. And he has to stop these burglars using his childlike imagination and ingenuity and hilarity ensues. Do you work on a marketing synopsis team for the film or something? I'm trying, I'm trying to pad it out while you find out what the name of his band is. <laughs> no, 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 I found it. I was just waiting for you to finish talking. Alright, so what, what, what are you is... saying burglars then? It makes it sound like Martin Freeman's trying to sneak yeah. into his house. Yes. <laughs> Steal his uh, ring. Have we got any examples of those song names? <laughs> uh, pizza Gal, Femper Towel, All Pizza Parties, All Tomorrow's Parties, Take a Bite of the Wild Slice, Walk on the Wild Side. <laughs> that wasn't even Bellamy Underground. That's, that was just, it was uh, Lou Reed, which is yeah. like what counts. That's, that's all, that's just putting pizza in the song title. <laughs> they got booed off stage when playing Rock City venue of the Doctor Dog Festival back in May. <laughs> well, he's probably just got so much money anyway. Who really? Yeah, he's Richie Rich, right? So exactly. <laughs> he's got a McDonald's in his own house, so you know. What? Wasn't that a thing in Richie Rich? I don't know. I, I thought you were actually being genuine then. I actually saw Richie Rich at the cinema. I paid wow. money to see that shit. You, you... I'm too young to remember who Richie Rich is. <laughs> that makes me feel even older. <laughs> anyway, how can how basically? How can you not like Home Alone? If you don't like Home Alone, you haven't got a soul. I have to imagine I can find people who don't like Home Alone very easily. Yeah. You podcast with one every week, Steve. Oh, you, you serious? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't get it. What do you mean you don't get it? It's a what? kid saying things kids don't normally say, which isn't very funny anyway. And it goes on. But it, it just you, All you're watching Home Alone for is the slapsticky bit at the end where he's put slippy paint or tar or something on the steps and people no and there's some nice out. there's some nice bits in it where he he realizes his neighbor's not a, a weirdo he's actually just a nice guy and the bit where his where his mum comes back and I guess he like wakes up smell and he like stings his face shaving yeah there's a, bit, there's a cameo with John Candy isn't there I like that bit I'll John Candy's in it yeah that, I like that bit, and the slapsticky bit is alright. I would I would have. The rest of the film, I'm not really. Kidding. I would have picked Planes. While we're on John Candy, I would have picked Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. So watch that on Saturday today. But that's Thanksgiving, isn't it? Rather than Christmas, the holiday in that one. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, so yes, that's that's all for uh, for what we've been watching. Uh, oh, Owen, Owen, at least we can all, can we at least all agree that Love Actually is awful? No. Yeah, I agree. No, I won't, I won't agree to it. <laughs> oh dear. I've got a soft spot for Love Actually, and I don't know why. I tried to have us end this segment on unity, and instead of course, more disarray and discord. <laughs> um, 
We all like yeah. It's a Wonderful Life, don't we? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. There it's we a, go. From from. Staying quiet. Yeah. I've so. never seen It's Wonderful Life, and I hate it. Right. Let's let's just end what we've been watching here. Have a little break for everyone to get over this. Um, <laughs> devastation they've heard from Owen not liking Home Alone and then we'll be back with our Christmas themed triple bill time for triple bill now then festive triple bill as it's a festive podcast near Christmas uh, and this week the four of us have been assigned an actor who has previously played Father Christmas and to pick his um his pick his, our favourite three films of theirs. Um, so I was allocated Tim Allen. Owen, who picked these actors for all of us, got Richard Attenborough. Uh, Matt got James Cosmo and Callum got Tom Hanks. Uh, who would like to jump in and kick us off? Should I go first? Seeing as it was me who sort of picked these, these yes, films. Yes, you go first. Well, it wasn't rigged. I, I literally sat at my desk, pulled apart a post-it note, wrote names on it, jumbled them up, and just picked them blindly, signed mm. them to oh. each of us. So it was like a proper drawing from the hat process. So, so. He didn't all just like have a peek at each of them as you went through. Like, okay, <laughs> no, no. I went, Tim Allen, no, not me. I'll put that one back in the hat. So if, you think about, if you think about it, you got Tim Allen, James Cosmo, Tom Hanks, all short names, and there's a big long bit of paper with Richard Amber on it. <laughs> No, I didn't do it that way. I had the names of the actors written down already, and then I wrote, Cal- oh, well, I put C for Callum, put M for Matt, and so on, and then I drew those. I drew our names oh. to the actor that was on the list. So one, two, three, four. See? Uh, I didn't cheat that way either. Heated, heated bits of paper like FIFA. <laughs> <laughs> the, the yeah, no, not like FIFA, because I'm not going to Anyway, anyway, so you had Richard Attenborough, who... So- who obviously played Father Christmas uh, in Miracle on 34th Street. Which three of his films did you pick as your favourites? Well, um, just to sort of start with as well, before I pick my three films, I hadn't actually seen Miracle on 34th Street before, um, so I rented it and watched it this past week, and it's not brilliant, is it? It's not a brilliant film, but Richard Amber in it is brilliant. He's just fantastic. He almost convinced me. I was almost believing he really was Chris Kringle. That's how good a performance it was. You almost had another emotion. I almost felt one of those things again, yeah. But I didn't, because it wasn't a very good film. <laughs> but he was good. <laughs> he was good. And of course, sadly, he passed away um, in August this year. At 90 years old. Good innings, though. Good innings. But yeah, passed away in August this year. Um, so it was a little bit sort of... Um, there's a bit of an, another emotion there, I suppose, because you're watching this guy who's no longer around, and I do enjoy some of his films previously. And uh, it, I remember I watched an interview with uh, David Abra on Jonathan Ross this year as well, Jonathan Ross's show, um, who described his brother, described Richard as a great comic. And I think that kind of joy for life that, that Richard Abra had comes through in his work, and perhaps in his best-known film, and my personal favourite Richard Attenborough film, which is Jurassic Park. Yes. Which plays John Hammond, um, a rich old geezer who has rather naively set about building a theme park for some dinosaurs he's genetically engineered. 
as you do. Um, you know, I've said it many times before on these podcasts. It still came up when we were talking about Richard Attenborough on the podcast after his passing and in other triple bills we've done in the past. Um, I don't think there's ever been a better kids' adventure film than Jurassic Park. There's just there's something about it that just captures the imagination and wonder of every sort of child and in this, you know, it's just brilliant. And the first 30 minutes of the movie, perfection. I think right up until the moment that you hear Richard Attenborough deliver one of his most, most quoted speeches, um, says, you know, uh, welcome to Jurassic Park. And then the John Williams iconic score kicks in and it's just absolutely fantastic. Richard Attenborough himself, of course, as John Hammond is brilliant. And as I say, it's got that kind of, the joy, that zest for life that he, that he brings to the ball. A um, little bit off topic as well. Jurassic World comes out June next year. And unfortunately, of course, there won't be a cameo from, from Sir Richard, Sir Dickie. But are, are any of you guys looking forward to Jurassic World? I, I was until I saw that trailer. I wasn't until I saw that trailer. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step naively into it and, and take it. Optimistically, okay. Hopefully, it's not a look three, like and it's more like one and two. Um, the trailer's a little bit wild and crazy, but even if it's half as good as the first one, I'll more than happily pay for the ticket. No problem whatsoever. That trailer looks like the best nonsense, basically. It's a sad version of the Jurassic Park theme on a mournful piano, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I didn't. I, I was. Optimistic. No, I was optimistic. I cautiously optimistic, perhaps, but the trailer didn't really. Also, I'm still in touch with my inner child, and therefore that last shot just sent it into giddy kind of ridiculous laughter. Yeah. And my whole you sad old gits. Yeah. I'm not going to put it on a pedestal like I did Godzilla this year, put it that way, in terms of highlights of the year. Yeah, but, um, so yeah, my first choice anyway, Jurassic Park. Um, second choice is his film from 1947, the British crime movie, uh, that, that basically shot him to fame with Brighton Rock, uh, directed by John Bolton. It's also, it's not a film I especially love, but if I'm picking this film basically, um, purely based really on the influence of Richard Attenborough in this, because it, I clearly couldn't leave out his performance as Pinky because he's exceptionally menacing in this as he manipulates Rose um, and hiding his secret about what he did to Fred through the film. And it's just there's there's one scene that I always mention when talking about writing books, people. It's a scene where he makes an audio recording for Rose, and I don't know if any of you guys have seen have seen Bright Rock. It's horrible. It's it's so cold. It's so chilling. There's a, so much hate in his voice. Um, that it, you just can't help but admire how brilliantly acted he is. And as much as I loved him in Jurassic Park, and I, I did enjoy the sort of warmth that he brought to the role in, in Miracle on 34th Street of Santa, but there's, there's argu- this is arguably his best performance, and it's such a dark film in general. And uh, quite rightly, I think it's held up as an example of, of Richard Attenborough at his best, because... Uh, I can't think of too many other performances that, that he put in that, that were better. Um, 
I can think of none that he put in that were better than this. But my final choice, though, uh, I really, I really wanted to pick the film that he won his only Oscars for. He won two Oscars for, uh, which was uh, unfortunately his best picture and best director, which was for Gandhi. And I know you, you also loved Gandhi, Matt. Yeah, absolutely fantastic movie. Really. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it is. It's brilliant, but he didn't appear in it as an actor. It was Ben Kingsley famously playing. Um, Gandhi, Gandhi, uh, and Richard Avra only directed it, which shows how multi-talented he was, because it means they've got to pick something else, and I can quite easily do that, so I'm going for a film he didn't have a, a massive starring role in, uh, it's A Matter of Life and Death, um, from 1946, directed by Paul and Pressburger. Again though, I don't think it's their best film, I don't think it's Richard Attenborough's best film, uh, and the main stars of it really are David Niven and, and Kim Hunter. Um, and it's about a court battle that sort of takes place in the afterlife to prove which is better, America or Britain, basically. Um, and it's also a love story. And, uh, it, yeah, so it's a very, but it's a very good film. And Attenborough only has a very small part in the film as an English pilot in, in the afterlife. But it's a memorable sort of smaller role. Um, and yeah, the film is very good. Um, I don't really want to say too much about it either because it's, uh, it, it's one of those films you can't really say, talk about it in a little bit of detail because it deserves a proper, proper um, write-up. And James has talked about it on the podcast before, so if I can, if I can be bothered, if I can remember, I mean, not if I can be bothered, I will try and dig out the podcast where he talks about it because it's one of his favourite films, and he'll do it much more justice than than, than I can. Um, but um, yeah, it's a very good film. So that's my final choice. Okay. Uh, I was lumbered with Tim Allen, uh, who played Father Christmas in The Santa Claus and various sequels. I've actually seen The Santa Claus and don't mind it. I think it's okay uh, in it. Um, Tim Allen's character startles the real Father Christmas, who's on a roof doing his present giving, um, and he falls off the roof and dies, and that therefore means that somebody has to be Father Christmas and he, Tim Allen's character doesn't just take on the role, he physically becomes Santa Claus. Um, it's, yeah, it's fine. But that doesn't make my top three. Uh, third in the list is Toy Story 2. Probably the weakest of the Toy Story trilogy. I think that makes it quite obvious what the next two are going to be. Second, Toy Story 3. Kelsey Breeze. 
And uh, at, at number one in uh, my my Tim Allen collection. Home Improvement. No, Galaxy Quest. Uh, what? No. No, no, no. Honestly, it's, it's it's Toy Story, the original one. Um, I just think all the Toy Story films are brilliantly animated. Um, you know, groundbreaking when they first came out. Obviously, in, in the original in '95, I think it was. Yeah, when when I was a kid, I first saw the original Toy Story. I very fondly remember it making it my favourite movie of all time at the time. And it was twelve years old. That's twenty years ago. Next year that was released. Yeah. That's mad. Anyway, you know, obviously kickstarted Pixar journey in cinema. Um, the voice acting's really good as well. I think for, for all the criticism given to Alan by picking these three films as his best three films. His voice acting, him doing Buzz Aldrin, uh, Buzz Aldrin, Buzz uh, Lightyear. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was listening to a podcast earlier that was talking about Buzz Aldrin, and that's where it came to my head. Uh, Buzz Lightyear is, is spot on. He's kind of got the right voice for a, an arrogant, um, cocky space ranger. Um, yeah, and he play, plays it really well. Um, Toy Story are, you know, first, the first ones, uh, but, you know, really favourite film of my childhood. And the last one, even though I watched it as a fully grown man adult, it was still brilliant. Um, and he was a big part of that. And it seems like they're coming back for a fourth one as well now, which is a bit disappointing. But, um, I don't know what that was. my anxious groan there. <laughs> it didn't sound like an anxious groan, but we'll leave it at that. <laughs> no, no, no. It's kind of like. Yeah. Like it doesn't like for me. It doesn't even matter if Toy Story Four is good or not. It's the fact they're going back to it at all because Toy Story Three ends perfectly. Yeah, like, it's the perfect ending. You go back at all after that, and you are just—it doesn't even matter if it's good or not. It's just it's tainted now. Plus, you know, there's the fact that Pixar haven't been on their A game for years, and they've lost—they've lost their originality, haven't they? And and after Inside That, the last dinosaur, it's nothing but sequels. Did any of you guys watch the Toy Story of Horror, or whatever it was called, that came out last year? Mm. Toy Story Terry, yes. I enjoyed that. Uh, like, if that's, what, if that's what we're going to do for Toy Story, like, if that's what we're going to do when we bring back Toy Story, Matt, you know, in shorts, like little shorts, or Christmas scene, like, I'm fine with those, and like, it's feature-length films. Like, because feature-length films are, you know, big official entries, whereas those ones are just like, you know, nice little, jokey little Canada, off Canada, so you can join in whenever you want. Right there. Like it feels ancillary. Yeah. Um, so Callum, um, who were you lumbered with for this triple bill? I was given Tom Hanks. And in process of doing research for this task, I found out that I haven't actually seen many Tom Hanks films. So, which is weird. I always thought I'd see, see more. I, I always thought I'd see most of the big ones, but as it turns out, I haven't. Um, so, my triple bill first off starts with, by default, Boris Gump. Um, uh, because, A, uh, like, because Steve's already taken on the Toy Story films, but again, in, fa- in fairness, he had Tim Allen, so I don't, I'm not going to complain there. It's very gracious of you, Callum. <laughs> you know, like, no, I realise it's, you know, the cool thing to hate on Forrest Gump, like, and, you know, because the Oscars and Weinsteins and how it stopped, stopped preserving Pulp Fiction from taking the talent from that, but I always really liked this film. Like, then again, the last time I watched it was, Many many years ago, when I was about like when I was about like fourteen, fifteen, 
And when I first seen it, I was a you know, a kid essentially in that, so there's that kind of stuff in there. But I always found found it to be a genuinely sweet, lovable, heartwarming film with a with a very capable central performance by Tom Hanks and uh, Robin Wright. And also a film that has forever inspired many incredibly uncreative people with a fresh insult if you ever see anybody running anywhere. So that, that yeah, as a negative. Um, but yeah, no, like it's, it's fine. I just haven't watched it in years. And that, but I, I do have fond memories of it. And I kind of don't, and I do hope to go back to it and enjoy it at some point there in the future. Um, my second film here is Cheating. Degree because he's in it and it can be over about 30 seconds and that, but it's the Simpsons movie. <laughs> okay. Again, cheating. Um, not, but, not, not cheating. Bit of a, bit of a controversial choice. I mean, but like you said, you've not seen too many Tom Hanks films. Well, well, would you define, I, I thought you meant like in terms of the Simpsons movie itself, it's not a good film. That, which I disagree with you, but. I mean, if you want to make the well, case against it, here, go ahead. Well, I mean, when, when, it, it's okay, but when you're comparing it to how good The Simpsons could be, it's, uh, it's just sort of bang average. It's, it's not even as good as a 20 minute episode from 20 years ago, basically. Well, in fairness, what's going to be as good as, as Golden Age Simpsons? That's true. That is like, a good argument. Like, considering the timescale that it's come out in, and the fact that, again, the feature length adaptations of TV shows are usually excretable. Um, I, I've always had a lot of fun with the Simpsons movie. I think it is incredibly funny. I think it's, I think it's messages of, um, global, you know, global performing about time were really well done. I thought it, I thought it finally moment to get back to the heart of the characters, you know, with Marge and, uh, like specifically Marge and Homer. Because, you know, too often, especially for me, it, it's a show that turns, that forgets that they are, you know, husband and wife and love each other. It's worse moments. I think it's incredibly well done. I think its animation quality is, is very high. And I don't know, I just always really enjoyed this film. Um, kind of wish it led to a bigger resurgence of slightly more adult focused um, animation fair coming out. But hey, it did it, but it didn't, as we all know, unfortunately. So we just get endless Shrek um, clones. But no, I, 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 yeah, I still always enjoy that. Um, and my third film here, which. I hope I don't get many complaints about that because there are many problems with the film itself. It has one of Tom Hanks' absolute best performances. Um, I think we can't agree. It's Captain Phillips. Yeah. From last year. Like, again, like that, that is a film that I, that kind of starts off that very bad and then it gets better the longer on it goes, basically. Mm. Like, like, you, we all, we all remember like that opening scene, you know, when Tom Hanks and Captain Keener are driving up to work and have this incredibly on the nose conversation about the future and stuff, and you're like, oh god, this is gonna be dreadful. But then, like, it slowly gets better the further on it gets, as it, as it then, you know, fully develops its characters, has Tom Hanks there, and this is incredible, and Lee, as Bark had Abby steals the show, as the, um, Somali pirate, the Iceman pirate who takes control of Tom Hanks' cargo ship. And then it gets this incredibly, and then yeah, it becomes incredibly tense, incredibly well directed. Paul Greengrass even manages to tone down his shaky cam to a very good degree, or very least use it in terms that are appropriate. Like normally, he seems to mask it in a way, like use it as a mask for the fact that his action scenes are shot really badly. Like that, uh, but here Captain Phillips he does it much better in, in terms of like it's used for effect instead of to cover up the fact that nobody knows how to frame a tight action shot. Um, and then again, as 
any discussion of Captain Phillips will always boil down to the last 10 to 15 minutes. Especially just like another, just another level. Especially, especially like that last scene, you know, with Tom Hanks, uh, as he's, you know, as he's being treated. And of course, just the way he breaks down, that is a, oh, uh, that is just like a gut, a gut-wrenching scene. Just there, just like, I remember just like being shivered, like emotionally shivered there when I first saw it in the cinema and that. I really enjoyed it. I still do not understand how on earth he did not get a nomination for Best Actor last year at the Oscars. Um, he's I, had too many already. <laughs> yeah, Someone else is go. Yeah. No, like, that's true. I and mean, also, last year was incredibly clouded for Best Actor and that. But at the same time, like, that scene at the end, that should have just cemented it there. He was phenomenal in this. And that, um, the end of the uh, Best Actor for Fail Critics last year. Yes, I think I was one of the people who helped with that as well, those things to go me. Um, yeah, but that's my triple bill. I have not, for the record here, I have not seen Big, I have not seen Tony and Hooch, I have not seen Saving Private Vine, I have not seen Cash Me If You Can, Road to Perdition, Three Mile, Castaway, I have, you can, you can tell right now here, I have not seen a lot of films. Okay, Clay Atlas, did you see? Still have not gotten around to doing that, I okay. want to. I, will, I think I want you to. would really love Clay Atlas. I, 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 I love most, pretty much everything Wachowskis have done, so yeah. I want, yeah, and, and I'm sat here hyped for Jupiter Ascending, even though I have a thing it'll be a giant mess, but I'm, I'm hyped for this. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll get around to doing that. Um, yeah, like, I've seen a lot of, I've seen every step up film, I've seen three Tinkerbell films <laughs> that I've not seen, I have not seen Charlie Wilson 4, I have not seen The Burbs, or Money <laughs> Pits, or Apollo 13. Uh, just somebody moves on here before I continue to embarrass myself. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm quite jealous. I feel like we could have swapped. I feel like we should have swapped here, but, um. <laughs> um so Matt, what have you seen? Uh, who did you get, sorry? So, uh, Owen signed me James Cosmo. When I got the email, I was like, fuck. <laughs> it's one of those actors who you will recognise some so many movies, but you probably just haven't picked up the name all the way because he doesn't tend to star in a, a lot. He, he plays periphery figures and supporting roles, but doesn't very well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing, I've, I've just done a search. I've just got oh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that guy. So yeah. anyway, um, the triple bill I've gone for a couple of films that will delve us into. Scottish Highlands, where he is from, and then one film uh, that takes us into a dystopian uh, United States 70 years into the future. So, start off with Braveheart from 1995, and I'm sure this is where most people would probably recognise him from. He plays um, the role of Hamish's father, who's William Wallace's best friend in the movie. And I'm sure by now we've all seen Braveheart and have a good idea of what it's about. It's been parodied to death. And Certainly nothing wrong with enjoying the movie, but it's the story of legendary Scottish patriot William Wallace, who starts a revolt against the English Dominion of Scotland following the rape and death of his wife. Um, growing up, this was one of my favourite movies, I actually loved it, although it's sort of been tainted um, over the years due to how anti-English <laughs> Mel Gibson appears to be in hindsight. Uh, as he tears apart the history books on this one. But um, it's, a, it's a great story. It's probably a little bit long. Uh, but if you're Scottish or just particularly happy to enjoy this era of history, then that's not going to be a problem for you. Highly insane, incredible battle sequences. 
um, very um, good storyline. It provides a, a good hero to get behind, and obviously the the ending will, will bring a tear to the eye, no doubt, and uh, is a little uncomfortable to, to say the least. But um, whilst I don't not particularly a massive fan of Mel Gibson, the director he is phenomenal as William Wallace in this. Um, Hopefully not too many people would, would disagree with that. Um, Brendan Gleeson plays an excellent supporting role as Hamish. Uh, he's gone on to have a, a, an excellent career after Braveheart. And again, he's one of those ones who, who will pop up in many movies. And you might not happen to know his name unless you're a really big cinema fan, but you'll recognise him from lots of different things. What have you um, in Bruges? In Bruges is one. Uh, I've seen some members in Gangs of New York and a kind of similar skull. Skull cracking role as he as he does in Braveheart, but yeah, um, one of my favourite films of the nineties for sure, uh, and certainly one of the better films from that year. Um, what do you guys think of Braveheart? Good fun, good yeah, good film. I'm a bit dubious on obviously like many people on some of the historical accuracy, but never mind. I kind of remember watching it, but not really much about it. But the the only thing I can really recall whenever I think of Braveheart is is Stuart Lee's routine about William Wallace. So I won't spoil it, but if you've ever seen his TV show, I think he did it on the TV show on Stuart Lee's comedy vehicle. It was hilarious. So I'll say no more. But that's all I can remember when I think. That's all that comes into my mind when I think about Braveheart now. It's really you think of me. Stuart Lee when someone mentions Braveheart. <laughs> I do, I'm afraid. Fair enough. I'll, I'll move swiftly on to number two then. Um, which again, another film featured in Scotland was Train Spotting. Sorry for inadvertently spoiling that. <laughs> what was that? Sorry. Sorry for inadvertently spoiling that a minute ago. Man. All right. Okay. No problem. So um, yeah, directed by Danny Doyle and of course based on the book by Ian Welsh, and it starred a who's who of up and coming UK talent at the time. With Ewan McGregor as the main protagonist, Renton. Ewan Bremner, Johnny D. Miller, Robert Carlyle, Kelly MacDonald, the list goes on and on. The story of a, a young drug addict who's desperate to clean up his act and escape the band of friends who keep whirling back into this destructive uh, drug-taking, fast-partying lifestyle. Um, this came out kind of at the, the same time as the last one, so it's a, a good back-to-back movie for James Cosmo, who plays the father of the main guy in this, Renton. Um, Certainly will go down in the memory of being quite a generational defining movie, particularly in, in the UK, especially on the back of the legendary soundtracks that came out. I think there was multiple soundtracks that actually came out, the film, if I remember correctly. But um, yeah, another one of my favourite films is the 90s. Um, I watched this fairly recently again with my girlfriend who hadn't seen it before. And um, yeah. It just reminded me of how much of an impactful movie it was when you look at some of the certain scenes where the baby overdoses, the missus started crying, the horrible um, relapse uh, scene where, where Renton's seeing a baby crawling across the ceiling. It's very hard-hitting and doesn't pull any punches in how it scrapes the bottom of the barrel of British society, if you like, and the drugs culture which was consuming uh, society, well, young society at the time. Um, I'm not a massive fan of, of British movies in general. I don't go out of my way to see enough of them, like some of my fellow critics. But this What's is... What's that supposed to mean? 
No, I'm just saying, I, I don't purposely go out of my way to see British movies. Um, but this would be towards the top of my list of all-time great British films. Um, and it's certainly one that if you haven't seen, you should definitely try and check it out, especially if you're a fan of British cinema. And just a little um, aside from that, it's still in the IMDb Top 250s, number 154, which for a film about drug culture in Scotland is pretty remarkable, really. But just goes to show, sometimes absolutely outstanding films do you know, get mainstream recognition. Yeah, absolutely. The final one of my triple bill, I decided to go for something I hadn't actually seen before because James Cosmo has quite a large body of work and there's always so many of them you've seen. I was tempted to go for a little bit of Game of Thrones, but that would have been cheating. Um, I've gone for a short film from 2009 called 2081. I'm not sure any of you guys are familiar with this one, but it was quite an interesting choice. Um, It was directed by Chandler Tuttle. And James Cosmo has quite a wide role in this, although it is quite a short movie. And it's uh, a movie adaptation of the Kurt Vonnegut novel Harrison Bergeron. Okay. Which is vaguely similar to 1984, but set much further into the future. So it's a, it's a dystopian view of what life would be like in the United States about 70 years or so from now. And the film, um, we join in the, the film during the great age of equality whereby the United States have passed uh, new amendments to the Constitution, which basically mean that everybody in society is equal. The beautiful are masks, so they can't use their looks as an advantage. The strong are weighed down with weights, so they don't have physical advantages over people. And the intelligent are blasted with noise into their ears so that they are disrupted in their thinking. So society is pinned down by brutal totalitarian government. Um, and we join the start of the plot with James Cosmo as a character named George Bergeron, who's the father of the main protagonist of the movie. He's sat in his flat, dark and dimsel and dreary. He's just sat in his chair, and he's a big guy, and he's, he's strapped down with weight, so he can barely move, and he's very tired all the time. And he's just watching ballet on TV, almost completely oblivious to anything that's going on around him. And even the, the ballet dancers on the TV are weighed down with weights. So not one of them is better than the other. So everybody is equal. And after a few minutes of pandering on to his wife, a little bit of chit-chat, he sees his son appear on TV and he's stormed into this um, ballerina performance. Ballet performance, beg your pardon. Um, his son is everything that the, the totalitarian government is trying to, to squash. He's tall and strong, he's handsome and very intelligent, even despite the fact that he has these handicapping weights on him at the time. And basically, he threatens the auditorium that he has a bomb and that they must give him his full attention or he'll blow it up and all of them with him, which leads to a bit of a panic that they all completely give his their attention to him, and of course he's on TV at this point in time. Uh, and this leads to an interesting scene whereby he removes his shackles, which are the weights that the government have put on him, and he removes the mask of one of the ballet dancers, which leads to a, a very beautiful scene of him and a ballet dancer performing um, completely unhandicapped by what the government have put on him in terms of the weights and, and whatnot, whereby 
in the background, the, um, the government are trying to uh, disrupt the signal um, so that people are getting this unfiltered image of what society can be like if people were to lose their handicaps. Um, but the, the SWAT team that have, have turned up to the auditorium have said, we've, we've cut the signal, you can basically go in and take care of this guy. So uh, they send in the heavies with shotguns and they blast the guy, but the, the bomb that Harrison threatened that he had on him wasn't a bomb at all, it was just merely a means of um, underserving the jamming of the signal, basically. So his performance continues to be transmitted to the public at large and they see him and the other ballerina get assassinated, which the movie alludes to at that point that some sort of uproar is going to take place. However, at that point, it cuts back to the apartment where James Cosmo sat there, having just seen his son being murdered on TV, and he's crying. And then a very large noise gets buzzed into his ear, which is part of his handicap. And it makes him forget what he's just seen. So he goes from one instant to be distraught, watch his son die, to go, again, completely oblivious to what's going on, and he continues to watch the TV. The, the propaganda that's been filtered down his way, and that's how the movie ends. It's it's very disturbing. Um, they managed to pack a lot into a thirty minute short movie, and um, it seems like you've been in this world a little bit longer than the movie actually runs for, and I mean that in a good way. You, it does a good job of making you understand uh, the circumstances in which these characters find themselves in, even in just a short, short time. And it's something that I, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of. Um, I would like it to anyone who hasn't seen it to perhaps something like 1984 if they took all of the, the most damning and powerful moments of that and put it into a short film, like a really good long trailer. That would be what, what this movie is more akin to. Um, for focusing on James Cosmo himself, he doesn't get to, to throw his, his acting weight around too much in it, but he provides a nice presence. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one to go see uh, for 30 minutes, and it seems to be freely available online. You don't have to necessarily go out and rent it. Whatever. I, th- I would say it's worth seeing, but it's an interesting movie nonetheless. Okay, uh, so that ends Triple Bill then. Um, but why don't you tweet us in what you would have picked if you would have picked in uh, picked anything different to what we would have done for any of those actors. Um, our passage break is going to be... Um, our new release review of The Hobbit, um, part three, The Battle of the Five Armies. <laughs> Time then now for our new release review, and this week it is the final part of uh, The Hobbit trilogy, The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. Apparently, the last time we'll be visiting Middle-earth, although I'm sure they can find a reason to take us back there for another 15 hours or so of our lives. Um, yes, obviously this brings a conclusion to the story that we embarked on two years ago, where Bilbo and a company of dwarfs were off to the Lonely Mountain to uh, uncover and reclaim dwarfs treasure and rightful kingdom. Um, at the end of the last film, Desolation of Smaug, Smaug had escaped uh, from the Lonely Mountain and was off to destroy Lake Town. Um, so for those of us who have seen it, what do we think of that? I I wrote a review for the website, 
Um, and I, I put a, a comment in it, which basically explains that I think it doesn't feel like a third Hobbit film. It feels like the third act to the second Hobbit film. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which isn't that surprising, is it, really, when you consider the fact that they were supposed to be two films rather than three, originally. Yeah. Especially since, as well, like, that opening is one of the worst openings I've seen in a blockbuster film in years. And the fact it's over and done with within about yeah. 15 minutes. Yeah. Like, it's, it is literally the ending to Smaug, just yeah. with help for you. Like, everybody went, like, okay, okay, oh shit, we forgot to actually film an ending. Hurry, let's get this over with. Like, there's no establishing shots, there's no reminders of who these people are, but it's just literally just boom, smart attacking village, chaos. Well, the ending to part two was really shit, I thought. Oh, no, it was. Yeah. It, was a set, it was just, come back next year, don't forget to bring another 10 quid. Your mm. middle fingers proudly extended to the audience, but, um, you yeah, know, like, it, it shouldn't have. It's also a shame, because I was sat there, enjoying it, going like, this would have been great if I'd, if this was attached to the last film, like, yes. it's supposed to be. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, like, no, other than that, I'm as a film overall, though, Owen, I'm a bit warmer towards it than you are. Um, well, I mean, I liked it. I did yeah. like it as a film. I just like, think the problem was, because I expected another Hobbit film, and it didn't feel like another Hobbit film, it felt like Diet Lord of the Rings. That's yeah. what it was. Um, um, yeah, well, I feel like this is actually the first film of the Hobbit series that I've actually fully liked. Okay, like, fair enough. Like, like, kind of because of the fact that I can't really find much filler, the pacing is very fast, mm. there are no particularly new problems in that, and it also pays off a lot of character work for itself throughout the entire series. It has one of those wonderful Lord's Living scenes where it beats you over the head with a beam until you get it, like, to make sure you get it, which are always good in Lord's Living's films. Um, and also, I don't know, I feel like there's just a slightly bit more, I think it's a sense that stuff happens in this one. But there's, again, only, like, there's only really one thing happening. Yeah, well, well, but also, but in that one thing, it's also paying off a ton of character work, and also, in a sense, that it's a battle scene that, unlike everything else in the Hobbit series, doesn't go on for too much long, or at least doesn't feel like it goes on for too long. Like, I think I only checked my watch once during this entire film, compared to the five times I've seen other Hobbit films, so I just keep furiously checking it every other time, and an overlong action sequence goes on. I will say this, it does expose a ton of the big problems have been running throughout the entire Hobbit series, however. Um, like the fact that I do not care about any single one of those dwarves except um, Bob in Open Shield, which I'm just because you know, his, his downfall is, like, and then it's essentially like the main narrative and emotional thematic thrust of the film. All those other dwarves, I don't care, they're all interchangeable. And the film doesn't really seem to care about them either as well. Like, they all just kind of fade into background for long stretches of time. There's loads including of don't Bilbo. even have speaking parts in this. Yeah, just... including Bilbo as well, which is a shame, because Martin Freeman does fantastic work as Bilbo as well. So the way he just keeps getting shunted into the back of the film at every opportunity, like, it just kind of frustrates me a bit. Yeah. Um, well, let's just... have a roll call then. Who who has seen the previous two Hobbit films? Yeah. Have we all seen all, all, yeah. Th- yeah. all of them, except Matt, who you haven't seen the new one, have you? That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean... Out of the two, the first two, then, do do we like them both? Or is I, the I thought or? the first one was okay. Like, the uh, the scene between Bilbo and Gollum was phenomenal. Yes. As a highlight of the whole trilogy. Absolutely. I presume. Um, part two, I didn't get on with. Um, probably Happy. mostly to do with the fact that I, I found 
the 3D aspect was too difficult to get my head around. And I felt like we were waiting the entire length of the movie just to get to see Smaug. Yeah. That okay. was my problem with the second one, and, and as resulted in me not wanting to see the film. Because I've seen him now, I don't, I don't need to see what happens in the last one. I don't care. And as Calvin said, I have zero emotional attachment to any of the characters in it whatsoever. In which case, you might as well watch the first 15 minutes of this third film and none of the rest. That's <laughs> if you've really yeah. got the interest to see what. Just yeah. finish off that film. Just watch the first 15 minutes. How about you then, Steve? So you, you, you used to be a really big fan of The Lord of the Rings. I've only recently been turned on to the map of watching the extended editions, but I remember you, Jerry and James, always used to... No, I still am obviously a fan of um, Lord of the Rings. They are good. They are good adventure, fantasy films, very good. Um, but it's, it's partly the look of them that, that does it for me. Everything seems to have been made in the Lord of the Rings to meticulous detail with a lack of CGI. And you must, they must have pissed off the extras a treat, especially the ones playing Orc, because they made them, made up, you know, them with armor and makeup, yeah. and they must have been so pissed off for that job. But it, it makes it look fantastic, and in The Hobbit, it seems to be, as the more the films go on, the more CGI is included. I mean, yeah. Billy Connolly's character is a complete CGI, it's just like, what's the 100% point? 100% CGI. Yeah, yeah, it's just like, what's yeah. the point? Why do you just need, why do you need his voice? Do you need his voice that much that you have to make his character CGI? Can't you get somebody else with a Scottish accent? Yeah, like, I think, incidentally as well, like, Billy, Billy Connolly turning up in this film gave you the exact same reaction of Stephen Fry turning up in Smack. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> What's he doing here? <laughs> but at least he's recognisable as Stephen Fry. At least it's Stephen Fry playing a physical... Yeah, human view. Yeah. Whereas Billy Connolly's just like this demonic half-creature thing that looks yeah. awful. Yeah. I mean, there are obviously reasons to do with Billy, Billy Connolly's health why he can't be there in person. But as Steve, then why would you get Billy him, Why would you get him? Why? Why? Yeah. Do you, it's he can't, not necessary to have he Billy can't Connolly. Be, he can't be that much. Like of, Billy Connolly and like blackmail on the producers and was like, "No, I'm going to be him. I'm going to be in this goddamn film. I'm going to do what it takes here." But he can't be that much of a pull. It's not like it's not like Christopher Lee, who's in his nineties, and you'd probably make some concessions around his health to get him yeah. involved as, in it as, as Saruman, because he's fucking Christopher Lee, he's brilliant. But yeah. but Billy Connolly, is he really that much of a pull that you need yeah. to to make a cartoon dwarf for him? Yeah. No. Well, I mean, I didn't even know he was in it until he popped up. So it no. was like this been advertised as having Billy Connolly. Yeah. yeah, like, your thing as well, when you put him in CG, Matt, that's another big issue about the series. It's just like, every time, I don't get why, like, the white, like, the white orc in that is CG. Like, it doesn't offer anything except giving all these battles kind of this lifeless, weightless feel. Like, like, you know, like, yeah, limbs are being chopped off, heads are going everywhere, but nothing connects, nothing feels like it does in Lord of the Rings, like in the Lord of the Rings series. Mm. Like, those films only used CG when it was absolutely necessary. Yeah. And then did you couldn't get actual flying dragon things to see. Yeah. Yeah, or if you need need to take that hundred extras and make it a thousand extras. (laughs) Precisely. But The Hobbit just does CG for pretty much everything, and that, and that means that when it gets to a lot of, you know, faceless action combat and that, it just means that, although, you know, you've got dismemberments and that flying around, which incidentally you had in Lord of the Rings Fellowship for bringing it as well, and that was very PG. Um, but, like, you know, none of it feels, none of it has any weight, none of it has any action, it all just feels so fake, so distant, so cold, and that there, which is another problem. And also, my other big problem with the series as well, here, Matt, is, the fact that it's a lot, like, 
this is a film where so much happens, and then but we'd also spend two girls' parts about having nothing happen, basically. Like, you, you could cut... Lord, like, the first film is two hours and fifty minutes. I feel you could cut that down to at least ninety. Like, you could get rid of pretty much any of Gandalf's, you know, like, flying around off-world, trying to link things Lord of the Rings. You could cut pretty much every other scene down by a minute or two. At least. Um, which is especially... Which is especially weird, because Lord of the Rings films are, are three hours long, but they earn those hours, because you can't cut a second. Like, because everything moves with pace, moves, you know, yeah. moves along. Like, my my key example of it will always be, like, the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring, you know, when Gandalf goes and meets Salman for the first time, and out steps his league, like, oh, oh. Like, because I didn't know much about Lord of the Rings before seeing these films and that, that. but, like, kind of, oh, he's going to be a villain, and the film's going to drag this out to make, you know, think, but, like, nope, by the end of this two-minute scene, boom, it's just like, everybody knows Salman's a villain now. It's like, Get, it just gets, service just gets shit done, basically. But The Hobbit drags, and Smaug especially, just drags and drags and drags and drags See, until you get to Smaug. I, I really enjoyed The Hobbit films as, as a whole. As a series, I, I still quite enjoy I think the third one was a little bit of a let-do. There wasn't much more it could have done if it was going to be a separate third film. Don't get me wrong, and I did, I did kind of like it, but I, I was disappointing considering the fact I thought they were getting better. I liked the first film. Um, and it was only when I rewatched it that I thought, actually, no, I, I do really understand why people complain so much about the pacing issues, because it does drag the story. However, this, in The Desolation of Smaug, I really enjoyed that. I just liked the... the it was more of an adventure. You're watching the, yeah. these people grow, and you're seeing more of the world, um, there's a lot more happening, a lot more interactions with, with the things around them. And Bilbo, they stopped doing um, this this thing that they did in the first one, which was constantly having, uh, understandably, as a sort of character trait, but constantly having Bilbo have to prove himself to Thorin over and over and over again. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been, quite... It's the kind of thing you put down on it, the film was, say, a third of its actual length. Precisely, yeah, exactly. And I do like Martin Freeman as Bilbo. It took yeah. me a little while to walk to him, but I do like him now. And as we've sort of said in the third film, he's just not in it enough. He really needs to be the, the focus, the main focus of the four front of shame, the film. It's a shame, because the scenes where he is in that, he's really, really good. They're the best scenes in the film, yeah. And then if also... You, if you exclude the scenes, of course, with Legolas, where he says stuff like, these bats were bred for one purpose. Yeah. Or war. Yeah, and includes well, well, well the single most utterly grown-worthy piece of fan service there as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I've come across him forever, just thought, which is shame as well, because, like, an hour earlier, the film also put up their best piece of fan service in this trilogy so far, because it's so utterly blatant about it. Yeah, like, where essentially, like, like, look, where, like, expendable Hobbit com- <laughs> group comes in to just, you know, battle demon wizards. <laughs> and that, like, like that, that's what, because that's the film basically just like, you know, proudly sitting up going like, yeah, we're gonna do this. We don't care. We're, we're gonna do this. We're gonna, you're gonna love it. And there it is, because it's goofy, ridiculous fun, which is something that the Hobbit series actually strangely lacks now that I come to think of it. Right, but no, like, I do, I have liked these movies and that, I just don't love them. I also really think they're a huge step down from The Lord of the Rings itself. Mm. Is it well. fair to say that Peter Jackson sort of lost his love for the whole thing through the amount of labour that went into all of the Rings trilogy. I know, I mean, like, he didn't... He's put his entire last work into one thing and then I've got to come back and do this rather than wanting to come back and do this. He didn't have to. Well, he stopped 
Guillermo del Toro, didn't he, basically? But he spoke yeah. to him and said, I'm gonna, you're not doing it right, I'm going to do it. That's how it seems to have come across. Mm. I think it's I think it's just he allowed wild, I think he just allowed too many wild excesses to just run, like go ahead, just like indulging in everything, you know, like worse traits. And I think just, I think the issue is less of the issue, and just more like nobody told him no at any point. Like, no, this battle chase should not, like, should not be 10 or so minutes long and have no impact here. No, this stupid uh, answer. Battle chase is one of my favourite bits of the series, though. I am not a fan of it, personally. No, I hate that. I couldn't stand it. Yeah. Really? It's so, it like, just no. got too unbelievable. Yeah, like, <laughs> I know it's a fantasy movie and everything, but it, apart from, like, the last surfing on a shield, most <laughs> of the things they do in the first trilogy are fairly believable. Mm. Yeah. To a degree. You get weight. You get that weight. You get the believability. It makes everything have impact. Whereas it's like you're watching a, a really neat, a really high quality but unfeeling cutscene in a video game. Oh. No, no, uh, I thought it was quite fun. It was like shot no, to be funny. But it's it like, was. Yeah. It's like, no, no, Peter Jackson, you can't make this battle chase 10 minutes long. No, Peter Jackson, you can't have Gandalf run around purposely trying to tie things, Lord Rings, and take it away from Bilbo and the other group. No, Peter Jackson, stop. Do not start casting Stephen Fry in this film. He doesn't need to be here. It's going to look weird and out of place for everybody. Like, like, I think that's just a problem. Nobody told him no, because everybody was so drunk off the power of the Lord of the Rings series, essentially. And that, and they're probably, but we can just do it again. People will turn up. It, it's going to work. And it does work in fits and starts, and for a good long length of about five armies, actually. It's just that it's not Lord of the Rings. It's a clear step mm. down. Yeah, does anyone think that um, the 3D works in this trilogy at all? Because I don't think it did. I haven't seen it in 3D. I don't watch films in 3D, so I try not to as well. I I I think they just pick films based on their start point. So I I saw the first one in 3D. I saw the second one in 3D with 48 frames per second, and I saw this one in 2D. Um, I I have I have glasses to see, so therefore I can't use 3D glasses. Anyway, anyway. Talking of things that have dragged on for too long, uh, the, pod- <laughs> the podcast is getting in danger of doing that. So to wrap up our chat on The Hobbit there, uh, where I think basically in summary, uh, good films, very watchable, not as good as the Lord of the Rings film, so, um, which seems to be fair comment. Anyway, uh, on to some recommendations for the weekend or the festive period. I'm going to start us off with a film that's on five star on Friday. Night. It's a film with Christmas in it. It's Dumb and Dumber. It's Lloyd Christmas for anyone who didn't get the joke. As we'll be seeing. Uh, don't, don't explain the joke. Really. <laughs> I felt like I had to explain it to some people. Anyway, the sequel's coming out. From the look of the trailer, it's going to be awful. So just watch this instead. One of, the, one of my <laughs> favourite comedies. You're surprised that the Pirelli brothers are making something awful. <laughs> <laughs> Performing well, though. I keep seeing it still in the top ten of your. Um... U.S. box office. In fairness, in fairness, there is quite literally nothing else counter-programming against it. Yeah, and, it's, and it's bombing overseas. <laughs> um, also, I, also, no, I expect this to be awful. Not just because of the fact that the Pirellis haven't made anything decent in either 11 years, if you like Shallow Hell, or 12 years, if you were about me, myself, and I read. But also, Peter Pirelli, just last year, was one of the people responsible for bringing us movie 43. So... Mm. Yeah, you know, I remember at the time when Jim Carrey used to say he hated sequels. He did the second Ace Ventura film. I think I remember at the time he said he's not going to do sequels again. He hates them. Yeah. And he's dragged back to do Dumb and Dumb and Two. Dragged back with a sack of cash, yeah. Exactly. Gotta get paid, yo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Callum, what? Ca- Jeff Daniels would have been the 
one doing everybody a favour. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, Callum, what are you telling people to watch? Uh, oh, well, that is a wonderful rich bevy of treats on a holiday and that. So I'm going to split my choices here with 6pm on Christmas Day. It's after Christmas on Channel 4. Um, extremely underrated Art Man Christmas movie. By which I mean, it got a load of high score reviews, but nobody talks about it anymore. So, much like how nobody talks about the pilots and the adventure of scientists, which you show because it's amazing. Um, and my second film is on Monday the 29th of December, which is on BBC One, 6.20pm, The Muppets. 2011 in America, 2012 in the UK. Excellent. Uh, Owen? Um, I'm picking, uh, I haven't seen it yet, so this is almost like a blind recommendation. Uh, but White Christmas is not the, the old film, but an actual sort of feature length episode of Black Mirror, Charlie Brooker's TV show. Um, Christmas special. I really liked Black Mirror TV series. So much so, I inducted one of the episodes, 15 million parents, into our 100 greatest TV, um, series for the site. As you should have done, that episode is amazing. It is fantastic. It is one of the best TV show episodes I've seen from anything, anything. Um, but White Christmas is the Christmas special. As I say, I've not seen it yet, but it stars John Hamm from uh, Bad Men and Rafe Spall, who's been in a million different things. Um, but it, it was aired on Channel 4 on Tuesday, on the 16th, but it'll be on 4 on demand. So definitely, definitely check that out at some point. Like I'm sure it will be brilliant. There's literally only been one episode of Black Mirror that hasn't been any good, so... Okay. And... <laughs> And Matt, what are you telling everyone to watch? Okay, I'm going to go for Boxing Day Morning, either you're nursing your hangover, digging into your cold turkey sandwiches, 9.40am on Sky Movies Premiere, Captain America The Winter Soldier, my favourite of the mainstream Marvel series to date. Um, really enjoyed this. Surprisingly high up on my list of films uh, for 2000. So if one of your loved ones hasn't bought it for you in Blu-ray for Christmas, you're in luck. Oh. I, I was going to say, I think it's probably going to feature on our end of year list, which is people can still vote for, by the way. Go to the website, foundcritics.com. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm bored today plugging things, but I think Captain America Winter Soldier is probably going to feature, uh, at least in the top ten, because uh, it's very popular, very popular. Right. I, I really... It's probably going to have it. It's probably going to like be fighting to death between that guy and the galaxy. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. That was it. That's all I had to say, really. Just I was going to say it's a point where I'm going to say it's a point where we're supposed to try and shake me down for information of what might be on my top ten here. Oh, go on. Let's all give give everyone a sneak peek. Pick one film that's on your top ten list for the end of year. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So on mine, I'm going to. Reveal that seventy-one is on my on my top ten. Okay, very deserving, very deserving. Brilliant. Uh, uh, Callum, um, I am going to go for. See, this is difficult here because this list keeps changing by the day. Um, <laughs> it's go- currently. I'm pretty sure the guest is going to end up on there. Okay. Where, uh, okay. So the guest will be in there. Where Sorry. it ends up, I don't know, but it's on there somewhere. Okay. Mysterious. Matt, I did a piece. The film critics website and why people on the Isle of Man are stupid and they should have gone to see Nightcrawler. Uh, yes. Very highly rated on my list. Definitely one everyone should try and see before it disappears. It was brilliant. I think that, that's another one actually. I think it's going to 
at least speed check, but also because of Jake Gyllenhaal's performance, that is got to it be is stunning. It is stunning work. He is a, a fucking damn savage. In it is a damn shame he will not be getting any Best Actor nominations. Yeah, it's just not that kind of film, is it? It's just not going to be. Which is a shame because his work is utterly, brilliantly terrifying. And yeah. Owen, tell us one that's in your list. Um, Inside Lewin Davis, the oh. Coen Brothers film, oh. is going to be on mine. Okay. It's not on mine. It's not on mine. It's cheating. But there we go. <laughs> well, it's with the according to the site, it's released in 2014 in the UK, and it was released January. I'm a pedantic dick, so therefore it's not happening. <laughs> Which anyway. is a shame, because it is one of my absolute favourite films of the year. Anyway, um, that's all for this week's podcast and our Christmas edition. We'll be back some point in the break between Christmas and New Year with our end of year uh, poll winners party. Um, join us for that one to see what we rate as the best films of the year. And you can vote on our website, www.failcritics.com. You can vote yourselves and influence what makes the Fail Critic uh, Awards for 2014. Um, so yes. Come and join us for that. Thanks to everyone who has listened and contributed to the podcast and the website uh, in any way, shape or form this year. And have a fantastic Christmas. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.